future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Our guest today, Dr. Temple Grandin, doesn't see the world like most of us do. For decades, she's worked to educate people about the unique way in which she does see the world, in part because of her autism. It's a way of seeing the world that she says is more akin to the way animals see the world. A place of fear without emotion, where thoughts present themselves in pictures rather than in words. Grandin has lectured widely about her firsthand experiences with autism, the anxiety that comes from feeling threatened by everything around her, the experience of being dismissed and feared, which motivates her work in humane livestock handling processes. She's the author of more than 60 scientific papers on animal behavior and has helped to design livestock handling systems in part because of her ability to visualize and design for animals' experiences. She's also a world-renowned autism spokesperson. In the book Neurotribes, author Steve Silberman wrote that Temple Grandin helped break down years of shame and stigma by being one of the first adults to publicly disclose that she was autistic. The author of 12 books related to autism and neurodiversity, many of them co-authored with colleagues who she describes as verbal thinkers with minds that complement hers, Temple has documented the insights she's gained from her personal experience of autism. In the foreword to her first book, Emergence, labeled Autistic, she's described as someone who conveys to the reader her innermost feelings and fears, coupled with her capacity for explaining mental processes. This gives the reader an insight into autism that very few have been able to achieve. Her most recent book is called Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. The book is a compelling argument for many of the ideas we've explored in this podcast, most notably that our education system as designed is incapable of supporting the diversity of human potential and brilliance. Dr. Grandin argues that this fact is now making itself apparent as America struggles to solve problems that can only be solved with the insights and skills of those she describes as visual thinkers, people who have increasingly been set up to fail in conventional schools as we've eliminated hands-on learning, trade and technical education, and elevated subjects like algebra into gateway subjects. A quote from a New York Times article she wrote to accompany the release of her book sums up the challenge. She writes, Many aspects of our society are not set up to allow visual thinkers, which so many of us neurodivergent folks are, to thrive. In fact, many aspects of our society seem set up specifically so that we will fail. Schools force students into a one-size-fits-all curriculum. The workplace relies too much on resumes and GPAs to assess candidates' worth. 
This must change because without a major shift in how we think about how we learn, American innovation will be stifled. Certainly, as we think about the future of SMART, the topic of neurodiversity comes into play. The conventional education system frames the conversation as though there's one, quote, normal way that people learn and that everyone else has a, quote, learning disability or the more asset-based frame of having learning differences. However, both these terms presuppose that there is such a thing as normal and hints at the idea that experiencing the world in a different way is somehow subpar. In Visual Thinkers, Temple argues the opposite. She tells us, people have to realize that different kinds of thinking exist. We need the visual picture thinkers like me, we need the pattern map thinkers, and we need the verbal thinkers, the ones that school is set up for. We need all these different kinds of minds because they solve problems in different ways. Neurodiversity is to human ecosystems what biological diversity is to natural ecosystems. Dr. Grandin thinks this is even more true with the rapid development of AI and the ways in which AI changes the relative advantages these different kinds of thinkers have in the world. Join us for a conversation in which we hear about some of Dr. Grandin's formative experiences and explore the core distinctions she makes between verbal and visual thinkers. We'll discuss why our current approach to math education prevented her and continues to prevent incredibly gifted individuals from pursuing their academic and professional goals, and we'll hear some suggestions from her about how to make education work better for all kinds of minds. Temple, welcome. It's such an honor um, and a pleasure to have you here with us today. Great to be here. So in this podcast, I usually start with people's personal stories, how they came to be doing the work that they do. So can you tell us a bit about your childhood, how and when you noticed you were in the world differently than other children and other people? Well, I didn't speak until age four. I was very lucky to get very good early education and speech therapy, really lucky. I also want to thank the good teachers I had. I had a very good elementary school experience in a small elementary school. Going to big high school was a disaster of bullying and teasing. It was just terrible. Being called tape recorder, and that was one of the things they used to call me. Because hmm. I'd always use the same phrases. You wrote when you were talking about your childhood that fitting in was a complicated business. And you compared yourself to Margaret Mead. Right? You avoided certain kinds of social interactions um, in favor of studying other people. And I'm curious, what did you notice or learn when you were observing other people in that way? Well, there was kind of, you know, like people be having a chit chat conversation. There was kind of an energy going on between them. Um, I can't even follow these conversations. You see, I'd rather talk about a shared interest. In fact, where autistic people get friends is friends who shared interests. And when I was in high school, it was horseback riding and model rockets and electronic circuit boards. And later on, it might be something else. Another kid, it might be band or music or um, theater. Friends who shared interests, really, really important. Because I like to talk about interesting things, not just about, uh, you know, chit-chat. You know, what amazes me about some of the chit-chat is, is there's almost no, no information in it. You mentioned that you were very lucky. Your family was able to send you to a special boarding school for students with learning differences. Um, tell us a little bit more about your science teacher. I had a science teacher who got me convinced to study. And he showed me that it could, you know, studying was a pathway to becoming a scientist. He was a 
He actually was a NASA space scientist and had worked on some spacesuit technology. And uh, no teaching credential, just a very creative scientific person. And he gave me lots of projects to do. And I got fascinated with optical illusions. And that was shown in the HBO movie about me. Um, and he I was challenged to see if I could build the optical illusion room that I was interested in. And so he kind of took an interest I had and expanded it. And he spent a lot of time with me. He worked with me for about three years. I can't emphasize how important mentors are. And in high school, he was my single most important mentor. And my interest in the livestock industry started as a teenager. I was exposed to it as a teenager, not as a young kid. For folks who might be listening who aren't familiar with your work with animals, um, tell us a bit about some of the solutions that you were able to develop, particularly because you are a visual thinker and were able to see the world in a different way. I'm an extreme visual thinker. Everything I think about is a picture. I don't have word-based memory. My memory is all graphics files. In fact, I talk about that in my book, um, Visual Thinking. I'm... Um, and I didn't know until I was in my late 30s other people thought in words. And I've been getting more and more insights in how different ways that people think give different approaches to problem solving. Very, very different approaches. Well, the first thing I looked at back in the early 70s when I first started working with cattle is I noticed that sometimes they would just stop and refuse to go through the chute. So the first thing I did was to look at what the cattle were seeing. I guess if you think verbally, you don't think to do that. I think the first step is you have to realize different kinds of thinking exist. That's your first insight. You see, an animal doesn't think in words. Pictures, smells, sounds, touch sensations. That's how an animal stores its memory, its memories. And I got down in the shoots. I took a lot of pictures with my camera, you know, cow's eye view. And there might be a rope hanging down, a shadow, a coat on a fence, um, a shiny reflection on something. And these things would make them stop. And if you take these distractions out of the shoots, the cattle went through them a whole lot easier. That was some of the very, very first stuff that I did was to simply look at what they were seeing. Now, I didn't know. Other people even thought verbally. I thought everybody thought in pictures when I was in my 20s. It was a shock to learn the, how the different the thinking is. You note in the introduction to the book that we do live in a country that, as you said, assumes language is the foundation for thinking. Um, and you suggest people take the IKEA test to see where they fall on that verbal visual spectrum, um, where the, the founder of IKEA, it turns out, has dyslexia. And so he privileged pictures over words. And that's why he named stuff after places rather than numbering stuff in the warehouse. And um, and you talk about how verbal thinkers tend to describe context in abstract ways that loses yeah. the humanity of things. So you talk about like a crash becomes impact with terrain or major problems are called anomalies. But you said like a visual thinker like yourself. That is engineering talk and or heard another term, rapid uncontrolled disassembly, <laughs> That's Rock, <right>. for example. <laughs> right. Um, but the... the um, you know, they kind of use that jargon. But a visual thinker like you, you see the wreckage, you see the pictures. Do you think that seeing things in that way, like in concrete detail, helps account for why a lot of visual thinkers struggle with anxiety and fear? Yes, because the thing is, is that 
I, what I've always said, you know, there's some movies I don't want to see. They're too nasty. And I've always said reading the review is not emotionally the same to me as seeing it. I'll read the review and go, no, there's too much cruelty in that movie. I'm just not going to go to that. I don't want those crappy pictures on my hard drive. Hmm. It's it's just that that simple. Um, and, and there is some research that people that are visual thinkers are a little bit more prone to PTSD because the bad experiences play back like videos. Where if you're a total verbal thinker, they don't. Uh, tell us about your squeeze box. Well, I, when I when puberty hit, hormones hit. I had horrible panic attacks, horrible panic attacks, and I went out to my aunt's ranch. And that's one of the things that got me introduced to the cattle industry. And I watched cattle go in a squeeze shoe, which is a device to hold the cattle and they vaccinate them. And it squeezes them on the sides. And I looked at like maybe that some of the animals kind of relaxed, so I went and tried that out. So then I built a squeezing machine that I that I could use on myself and deep pressure is calming to some people not everybody but some people deep pressure is very very calming and and as I went through my 20s the panic attacks worsened and it was just what the scientists call endogenous meaning it's from within and it got worse and worse colitis attacks it just wouldn't stop and I'm Finally, I finally went on antidepressant medication, and that's discussed in my earlier book, Thinking in Pictures. Um, very low dose of antidepressants stopped this constant fear. Hmm. The nervous system was lost time in a constant state of fear for absolutely nothing, for no reason whatsoever. You note that one of the advantages you had being raised in the 50s is that young children were taught manners and taught explicitly how to be in the world. Tell us more about that. Well, that was normal. 50s upbringing you know we'd have sit-down meals you were you were taught to say please and thank you like if you went to the store and you bought something you would say thank you to the clerk you know let's say you know bus driver holds the door open for you something like that you say thank you and mother used to cue me you forgot to say please you forgot to say thank you and then another thing we did in the 50s that all kids did when we were seven and eight years old we had to dress up in our good clothes when the parents had a party and you had to greet the guests, and it was, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. Wood. We weren't allowed to use their first names, even though we knew of them. And we served the snacks. Of course, never served alcohol, only served the snacks. But that's taught how to talk to older people. It, it taught social skills. Mm. And that was standard 50s upbringing. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of grandparents come up to me all the time. And they discover they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. And what diagnosis for an older adult does, it's almost a tremendous relief hmm. because it explains why some of the relationships have not worked out well. Now, I'm seeing the younger kids, like the 10-year-olds and stuff, it's holding them back because I'm seeing parents uh, babying them so much, they're not le learning any basic skills like shopping, ordering food in restaurants, budgeting, just basic life skills. And for you, as someone with autism, that kind of explicit teaching and, and modeling and prompting kind of helped you. I think you are a very high-functioning um, person with autism, is how you describe yourself. Well, I want to thank you for sharing that. I think you have been so important in um, in the advocacy you do for um, for different minds and people with autism in terms of helping folks understand um, and name the realities of their world. So getting back to visual thinkers, so you distinguish between object visualizers 
And visual spatial visualizers. Yes, they are two different kinds of thinking. And one of the big mistakes done in a lot of the research is the object visualizers, the picture thinkers like me, and the pattern mathematical thinkers are mixed together and then compared to the verbal. And, the, and what some of the research has shown is that they're actually opposite different ways of thinking. Mathematicians think in patterns. I just see in pictures. You give an example, a study where people were given schematic drawings that represented motion of an object. Basically, what was shown, it was just a line drawing. It shows a straight line and then a line sloping down. Mm -hmm. And you were told to describe motion. Well, I immediately saw as a child my, going down a hill on my sled. You see, that's real, where the mathematician will do a more abstract, you know, discussion of motion. And why does it matter to distinguish between those two kinds of visual thinkers? Because it's different kinds of problem solving. Engineers calculate risk. I see risk. Let's think of a very simple example of seeing risk. I see this all the time. People that put a cup of water on an airplane on an open laptop. <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding. Closed laptop <laughs> on top of the lid wouldn't be so bad. The oh, they're still not great. <laughs> on an open laptop, put a cup of water right there next to the keyboard on the laptop, on a plane while it's flying. There's no way I would do that. Because I know what's going to ha happen to the laptop if that water spills. It's going to wreck the laptop. And would a visual spatial thinker? A visual thinker sees that risk. Right. I see that water spilling and going on the computer. The visual spatial might kind of calculate the risk. Well, the plane's not bumpy right now. Um, you say object thinkers build the computer and spatial thinkers write the code. Like that's some of the difference. That's right. They, the object visualizers would work on the hardware. Okay, like someone like me, let's say you got a big data center and it's got, you know, heat problems. Okay, I can see ways to fix that. The engineers calculate how much heat we have to pull out of there, how much heat the servers would give off. So because we're talking with a lot of folks who work in education, I want to dig a little bit in terms of our current education system and how it works or doesn't work for these different kinds of visual thinkers. So you mentioned this earlier. You said early math made sense to you because you could visualize fractions or finding areas of spaces, but algebra was very hard um, for you. Absolutely couldn't do algebra uh, because there's nothing to picture. And I'm what's called an object visualizer. Everything I think about is a picture. And then you have the spatial visualizer. This is the mathematician who thinks in patterns. And they're very, very different kinds of thinking. And there's scientific research to back that up. So what happened with me is we kept pounding away on algebra. I never got to take geometry or any of the other you know, types of math. And I'm concerned that object visualizers like me are going to be just screened out. But the thing is, I got to do a lot of engineering on my cattle handling stuff. But I did it with the shop people. This is what people don't realize. There's two kinds of engineering. There's a mathematical part of engineering, a university-trained engineer. Okay, if we're building a food processing plant, they do boilers and refrigeration, snow loads, power requirements. But then you have what I call the clever engineers. These are the people down in the shops, barely graduated from high school, but they can visualize all kinds of equipment, and they invent all kinds of mechanical devices. Uh, which the mathematician doesn't visualize. And I worked with a whole bunch of these people. And some of them could not do algebra at all. And uh, they might have 10, 20 patents each. 
and the industry still using the stuff that's on those patents. I get mad when people say stupid kids go shop. Mm. This is a different kind of thinking. They just see how mechanical things work. How did your difficulty with algebra play that out for us? What were the implications? Well, I can tell the implications for me. I wanted to do aerospace. I couldn't do it. So I majored in psychology. I'm dodging math classes. The um, get through statistics, I had to um, be tutored, 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 and thank goodness. Freshman math, when I back in 67, was not algebra. It was a lot of statistics, matrices, and finite math, uh, and uh, probability. Because like casino probability, stuff like that. And you see, I could relate that more back to real things. And I had to be tutored in that. Um, but, you know, things like algebra, for example, right now, and calculus, are gaining more importance. Well, let's on, let's on math education, I'm, what I would suggest is I'm not suggesting getting out of math. You've got to be able to do your arithmetic. That you have to be able to do. Um, how about a statistics class? Maybe business math, maybe accounting, maybe geometry. Because I'm also seeing a number of people who absolutely can't do algebra could do geometry. I never even tried geometry because I kept flunking algebra. Um, but I'm seeing people that want to be a veterinary technician, for example, on their third algebra class. You don't need algebra to be a vet tech or a veterinarian. Now, there's a tiny little bit of algebraic stuff for drug dosing. That can be just flat memorized. You don't have to understand it. You just memorize it. And it's a limited amount of stuff. You see, the, the, a lot of people think you have to have algebra for logical thinking. I said, why are you pushing that so much for veterinarians? And I talked to a dean of a vet school, not ours, uh, but another vet school. I said, why are you pushing algebra so hard? And he said, well, they need it for logical thinking. No, that's not how I think. And so you would suggest that in, in schools, we have different pathways for mathematics education. There's another thing that I talk about in my visual thinking book is in Europe, Europe, is making all kinds of mechanical equipment and shipping it over here. You want a pork plant or a chicken plant? You got to get the equipment from Europe. We're not making it because all our, our object visualizers are playing video games in the basement. And I'll tell you, designing video games, artificial intelligence is going to take that over. And programming, a lot of that's going to go out. But the people that work in the shop, the people that fix things, those jobs are safe from artificial intelligence. I'm glad you brought up um, artificial intelligence and non-biological intelligence. There is um, a book that you reference in visual thinking called The Stone Age Origins of Autism. And the author there talks about how groups that can integrate different kinds of minds actually do better because different minds have different strengths. So he talks about uh, visual thinkers with their focus on details and memories can see things, as you've said, that other people can't. People with mild bipolar traits maybe facilitate um, socialization within groups. And so those milder versions continue to provide advantages. What's your thinking about why neurodiversity becomes even more important in a, in a world? We, I tell, it's very simple. We need the different kinds of minds. I've been on some very, very questionable elevators lately. And one of the reasons is, is nobody's fixing them. I did see some younger guys the other day at the Denver airport working on the escalator. That I'm not the escalator, the moving sidewalk. That made me happy. But a lot of the people I worked with have retired out. They're not getting replaced. You see, in Europe, you can go university route or you can go tech route. And they don't stick their nose up at the tech route. 
Italy, you can go university, tech route, or art for their clothing industry, clothing and fashion industry. You know, by having the the uh, university track and then having what they call a technical track. And I'll tell you right now, the kids in the technical track, their jobs are a lot safer from artificial intelligence. And I, what I hear you saying is that we have these singular definitions of what it means to be educated, of what we think success looks like, and that we have well, to certain expand basic that. things. You've got to be able to, um, you have to read at the decent sixth grade level, period. You can run a business at that level, period. And you've got to be able to do basic arithmetic. Yeah, that I had no problems with. Mm-hmm. It's when the math got abstract. And about taking more, some more practical math, working practical math into things. Okay, in a cooking class, we're not going to do half the recipe. We're going to do two-thirds of the recipe. Let's make it a little harder. See, now that's teaching it in, in the real world. The first step I tell business leaders is you have to recognize these different kinds of thinkers exist. And the thinker that's having the worst problem in the educational system is the object visualizer, the picture thinker. It's me. You were sharing a little bit about the people that you get to work with on a daily basis, the people with patents, the people who are building things. Can you share a little bit more about that? I think a lot of us listening may not have those kinds of interactions. They would just invent stuff, um, invent all kinds of mechanical things. Let's say you take something like an elevator. Someone had to invent the mechanism that makes the elevator go up and down. And that's not going to change with artificial intelligence. It's still going to be the same mechanisms. They haven't changed all that much. Somebody had to invent those. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're sort of warning us and telling those of us who might be verbal thinkers, right, that we are missing a large part of the world that is invented by, seen by, created and built by. You see, now we're visual thinkers. You see, the thing that the words do is store knowledge books and all kinds of things like that if you if you if you just had visual thinking you wouldn't have any way of storing knowledge that's one that language gives you so then people aren't just reinventing the wheel over and over again and then verbal thinking is also much more linear because the people i worked with often had to get a verbal thinker to run the business side of the shop to make sure the bills are paid you know just all the things you have to do for running a business but the kind of engineering that goes into an automated warehouse, and you can look them up online, it's all clever engineering. And then, but then it has to be programmed. Okay, you got robots moving around in there, then it has to be programmed. So my kind of mind will build the equipment, or let's say we're students in a robotics class. I'll build the robot, the mathematician programs it. You see, you need both kinds of minds to make a good robot. Or let's, for the Mars rover, mathematicians got it to Mars. Somebody in a shop built the cameras on a workbench. You need both. Simon Baron Cohen um, believes that people with autism are responsible for a lot of the world's innovations. Oh, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Look at Einstein. He'd be labeled autistic today. No speech until age three. There's a lot of people. Steve Jobs would be another one, probably autistic. Half the leaders of Silicon Valley are probably autistic. Tons of innovation. Edison would be another one. And how about dyslexia? Well, there seems to be a lot of crossover. You know, the book about dyslexic CEOs, and they were very creative. They had you know, vision for their business. Now, let's look at something that Steve Jobs did. Steve Jobs was not a programmer. He was a visual thinker. He designed the interface for the iPhone. 
which was then copied by every other brand of phone. And the engineers had to make that interface work. So when you swipe it, it would do what it's supposed to do. And, and that's different minds right there. You have an engineer make a phone. They just want to load it up with a few features because it's just so cool. Well, that's not cool. The average person is going to use the phone. You see, programmers really get, you know, they'll look like the beauty of their code. So user-based design, which is a big thing now, almost requires the somebody. The thinker is the one that's going to make it more user-friendly because they just see how to do it. They just see it. And the user interface is important. And some mathematical engineers don't think it's important. But on the other hand, there'd be no iPhone if you didn't have all the mathematical programs programmers make the inside of the phone work to make that interface that the artist made work. Okay, that's an example of different kinds of minds right there. iPhone. Because when the iPhone 4 came out, that was so radical compared to the other phones. I mean, I love the examples you're giving because you're you're showing us and giving us examples of the ways in which those of us who are verbal thinkers don't see the minds that created many of the things that we take for granted um, and that we probably couldn't uh, put together because we're not visual thinkers. You need all the different kinds of minds. Like, for example, the moon suit that went to the moon years ago was made by the Playtex bra company. Huh. And they kept that secret for years. I thought kids would think that's funny. The <laughs> finest bra seams just sewed it. And a bra and, and bra people helped design it so it would be flexible. They were not degree, they were not degree engineers. And there's a book called Space Suit, and it describes some of the conflicts between basically the sewing people and the degree engineers. Huh. And the sewing people won out. Yeah. In fact, Playtex won the bid. You see, the other thing is. The other engineers want to make a hard shell suit. Well, that wouldn't even fit in the lunar lander. You need a suit that you could fold up so you could put it in the lunar lander. You mentioned the term tinkers. Who are tinkers? And are tink is tinkering a dying art? Kids don't tinker anymore. I would tinker for hours experimenting with little paper kites to get them to fly better. Little parachutes, putting wire crossbars on, made from coat hangers to make them open up quicker. And I would try all these different designs and just try different ways of doing it and spend hours doing it. That's tinkering. And kids don't do that anymore. Also, it teaches kids to not get completely freaked out when they have a mistake. Mm. You learn from mistakes. Okay, so it's because I had a teacher ask me. I couldn't believe a teacher asked me this. I held up this paper snowflake. And um, you've got some kids that never, ever, ever made a paper snowflake. I remember this. Yeah. And we have kids today growing up that have never measured anything, never mm -hmm. used scissors. And I had a teacher ask me when I held up the paper snowflake, well, what's going to happen to the kid's self-esteem if the snowflake fell apart because they cut it wrong? I said, get <laughs> another piece of printer paper, and you learn from that mistake. I couldn't believe a teacher in all seriousness asked me that question. And we're depriving young people, right, by le by not ha letting them have these experiences with the real world where they tinker and they try and they fail and they, we're, we're sort of depriving ourselves of healthy human beings that can kind of build the world, right, that we need around us. Well, make it more resilient. One thing I'm appreciating, so first of all, you have 
held up, our, our listeners can't see that, but you've held up like eight different books. I mean, you're a prodigious writer. Um, tell us a little bit about it, because one of the things I'm appreciating about you is even as a visual thinker, you have done the work to communicate with and get better at the verbal. Oh, well, also on a lot of my books, I've used a co-author for organization. If you want to read stuff that's strictly, absolutely my writing, um, I have lots of livestock stuff that's strictly my writing. I have a book called The Way I See It. It's an autism book. That's all my writing, little short chapters. But on my books where I had to do a longer thing, what I did is I'd do rough drafts. And then one of my co-editors, Betsy Lerner, would, would smooth it all out, rearrange it. And she was just magical in how she did that. But we were working together when we did the visual thinking book. We were very definitely, I did rough drafts of each chapter. So there's no way she could have looked up the science stuff and things that I found. And then um, she'd smooth it all out, rearrange it, add some more, you know, maybe some, some school stuff she'd look up online. And we worked together in a cooperative way. And that's been done on a number of my books. And then I have livestock books where the writing is all mine. And what I've learned is to make a really tight outline to prevent the rambling. And I have no problem writing a short article. You know, that those don't ramble, you know, like a four-page article. So to the extent that a visual thinker like you has worked to both understand verbal thinkers and speak our language, what would you what advice would you give to those of us who are verbal thinkers to better see and understand the world in a way a visual thinker does? Well, you have to just first step in understanding different kinds of thinking is to, is to find out that they exist. I didn't know they existed until I was in my late 30s. I thought everybody thought in pictures. I didn't know. You have to realize that they exist. Well, one of the big problems with verbal thinkers, all right, let's go back to a concept like an inclusive classroom. Okay, a verbal thinker might talk about that. How do you do it? Okay, my mind of mine, and I use this example quite often in my talks. I'm going to give you three things you can do to help make a classroom more inclusive. Now, I don't remember long strings of verbal information in sequence. So, pilots checklists, type format for things that are in sequence. Very simple accommodation. That's something, you know, very simple, it doesn't cost anything. Um, and then... The kinds of jobs I would be terrible at, rapid, chaotic multitasking. That's not the place to put me. The other thing is LED lights that flicker. See, a lot of kids that have a special ed label, either autism, dyslexia, ADHD, or a head injury, can see flicker on certain LED lights. So the whole classroom is like a strobe light. And you can detect that by um, taking slow motion video with your phone. Um, let's please a new construction. Let's not have that. Hmm. Okay, so that's things right there for an inclusive classroom. And you see, you see, it's not abstract. And it's also stuff you can do, can be done easily. You see, I'm always thinking about, thing, I'm also thinking about stuff we can do that doesn't cost a fortune either. And getting LED lights that don't flicker doesn't cost a, a fortune because some of the cheaper ones actually were better. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you gave us three or four things in a classroom. What about in a school? What are three or four things we would do in a school to really make it more inclusive? Bullying has got big, big number one. And I was lucky to get through elementary school and not be bullied. 
And one of the reasons for that is Mrs. Deach, my teacher, told the other students that I had a disability that was not visible like a wheelchair and they needed to be helping me. That's called peer mediated intervention. Has a fancy name. I looked it up. That's a great concrete suggestion, right? That the idea of making obvious to young people what is happening and ways in which they would behave differently. And then if we took it one step up, and you've given us some ideas, I'm curious if you have anything else, but really concrete things in our education system. You've mentioned bring back shop class. The other thing, big thing I do, I put all the hands-on classes back into the schools. Mm -hmm. Cooking, sewing, woodworking, art, theater, music. Now, I had access to music lessons and stuff that I couldn't figure out how to play a flute. You know, it's... But another kid's going to take off with it. You see, you've got to expose kids and put these classes back in, and we can work practical math into um, a lot of those classes. Um, shop teachers, the places that still have shop, are pulling their hair out because um, the students don't know how to measure. So they got to have three classes just on measuring because the kids have never measured anything. And and putting those things, I, I excelled in those classes. Those were classes I was good at. And I've changed some of these math requirements. You know, how about business math? You know, something, you know, geometry, statistics. So I'm not saying get out of math totally. You write one of the most useless questions you can ask a kid is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, you say it's a really vague verbal thinker question. Well, I think that kids, well, my approach is exposing kids, you know, young kids to lots of different things. I was exposed to musical instruments that they didn't work for me. You expose another kid to musical instruments, they take off with them. You expose another kid to the algebra book that I would use as a doorstop, another kid's going to take off with it. In fact, this kind of verbal way they're teaching math, the real math heads hate it. They hate it. Let's dig the old algebra books out of the attic. And and those are the kids that are total math heads. That's what they need. And the other thing I forgot to say is that so-called normal people are more mixtures of different kinds of minds. But you get someone with a label that may be an extreme object visualizer like me or an extreme mathematician. You can have that too. You also have a verbal thinker who's like an encyclopedia of knowledge about history, knowledge about baseball players or some other thing that interests them. And and uh, they can be very good at like specialized retail jobs. Help somebody. Okay, so there's 50 different phones. I was in Walmart last night. Oh, there's all these phones in there. Where do you start? But that's where somebody is really knowledgeable of all those phones. They're trying to sell you the most expensive one. Pick out the right phone for your needs. That could be the autistic super word mind. And I'm seeing too many of the kids, especially my kind of thinker, just going nowhere. The other big problem I'm seeing is fully verbal kids with autism um, not learning work skills. That's another gigantic area. And when I went to the special school, they put me to work running the horse barn. Cleaned nine stalls every day, put them in and out, fed them. I learned how to work. Really, really important. And lots of these autistic kids that are really smart, they might ace school, graduate with honors. She didn't know how to work. She ended up recluse in her room because she hadn't learned one work skill where you learn how to do a task on a schedule for somebody outside the family. Really important. Has to be outside the family. So you could start with um, walking dogs for the next door neighbor. Somebody else's dog. 
Let's, let's find a replacement for the paper route. They can do that when they're 11. A replacement for the paper route. Hmm. What is next for you in this next phase of your, of your career? You're teaching, you are writing. I plan to teach my class, still want to do that, still do some research, but also I'm out doing talks about the different kinds of minds. I think the most important thing is people have to realize that different kinds of thinking exist. They are real. And when you get a person that's got a learning difference, you may, you, you tend to be extreme on one of these skills, like object visualizer, the mathematician, or maybe the word thinker. Um, there's less mixtures. You know, trying to teach me algebra is like trying to teach, teach a blind person to take photography class. That doesn't make very much sense. And we need the visual picture thinker like me. We need the pattern math thinker. And we need the verbal thinkers too. We need all the different kinds of minds. They solve problems in different ways. You know, right now, I'm one of the things I'm working on is uh, making people aware of the different kinds of minds and that we need these skills. Don't do it just to be nice. We actually need the skills. And I'm watching, I'm following the AI stuff very, very closely. And, and uh, the, the jobs that the object visualizer can excel in, like fixing things, um, so who's going to keep the power grid going? Mm. Things break. Um, it's not going to be the word thinkers. And these are things I think is important. That's the kind of stuff I find really interesting. Well, Temple, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing um, in a complex world to remind us that we need different kinds of minds. We do need all the different kinds of minds. And I want to really emphasize the complementary skills and how they need to work together in a complementary manner to solve problems. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. ulcca.com.